0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com/slash PW and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and AudioBookRadio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
0: On today's show, Elsa Hart discusses her debut novel, Jade Dragon Mountain. Then PW News Director Rachel Deal explains why everyone going wild for the rabbit who wants to fall asleep.
1: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We have a new number one in fiction.
0: And what might that be? It is
1: X by Sue Grafton. This is uh, exciting. Mm. She's finally kicked Harper Lee out of the number one spot. Go set a watchman has been there for six solid weeks. It's now at number two. And uh, Grafton did that quite handily, actually. Uh, Ghost Out of Watchmen sold about 30,000 copies this week which is no small potatoes especially yeah. for a book that's been out six right. weeks Right. Uh, but Grafton sold 49,000 copies in hardcover according oh, wow. to Nielsen Bookscan right. so um, we gave it a starred review this is the 24th Kinsey Milhone novel she's got two letters to go and yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, this is the you know letter is for word yes. series so the previous one is W is for wasted this one breaks the formula For the first time in the entire series history, it's just called X. Now, many years ago, I saw an April Fool's Day New York Times bestseller list, which posited all sorts of uh, hilarious mergers between various companies. But one of the books on there was X is for xylophones that fall out of the sky and land on your head, killing you. Because no one could figure out how she was going to turn the letter X into a, a, oh, a murder crazy. mystery, um, but this uh, this book includes a variety of X's: a divorced couple named Xanakis, a spot on a map, X marks the spot, and so forth. And uh, we say that uh, Kinsey has to finish an old case. Uh, Which puts her in the crosshairs of a man who may be a murderer. And this superior outing will remind readers why this much-loved series will be missed as the end of the alphabet approaches. Mm. So she's got Y and Z, and then I'll be very interested to see what she does. Maybe says thank god that's done maybe moves on to numbers uh, or
0: the Cyrillic alphabet i was
1: going to say greek great <laughs> yeah that there you go yeah yeah alpha, is, alpha yep. is for alphabetically ordered murder weapons so um anyway that's x it's a number one and uh that's going to be tricky to search for on amazon but clearly some folks have managed it yeah uh down at number three is the Nature of the Beast by Louise Penny. We also give this a starred review uh, it is the stellar eleventh novel into the Armand Gamache series set in uh, quebec mm-hmm. and uh he's you know, Gamache has now retired from working as a homicide detective um, He's settled down in a small town, but of course uh, he can't resist. The lore of the hunt uh, after a nine-year-old boy is found dead under circumstances that he feels are suspicious. Uh, And we say that serious fans will delight in Penny's continued complex fleshing out of characters they have come to love. Uh, And there's a big author tour for this one. And that's at number three. Uh, scooting down the list a little bit, number seven, The Taming of the Queen by Philippa Gregory, um, obviously very well known as a historical author. Um, this is an absorbing Tudor novel that traces the relationship between Henry VIII and his sixth wife, uh, who, uh, as we all know, being very familiar with Henry VIII's many, many wives, right. uh, is Catherine Parr. Uh, and... Uh, she he proposed to her in fifteen forty three. Um he died four years later, and uh this is so this is uh the the tale of his uh his final wife. And uh we say that Gregory balances Catherine's sensual responses to royal life, the smell of her predecessor's furs, the king's sweat drenched clothing, uh, with some religious controversies that dominated the fifteen forties. And uh, we say that tracing her path to intellectual independence requires more religious discussion than some readers will prefer, but obviously it's a very big part of the time. Oh, sure. You can't really write about the era right. without writing about religion. And we do say that Gregory's portrait of the complex aging king and his sensual scholarly bride will certainly satisfy Tudor enthusiasts. Oh, what? Well. And then down at number fourteen, a little change of pace is "Starlight on Willow Lake" by Susan Wiggs, and uh, this was uh, part of our uh, Christmas roundup. And uh, we say that she ensnares readers with her marvelous eleventh Lake Shore Chronicles contemporary uh, about a single mom trying to make ends meet for herself and her two daughters, uh, and she is, ends up taking work as a as a caregiver. For an elderly woman and is surprised by her attraction to the woman's son, but there are a lot of differences in backgrounds and socioeconomic status to overcome. We say that the most riveting aspect of this feel-good novel is the attraction between Faith and Mason, which leads to a gradual and unforgettable romance. Oh, great. So that's uh, that's one for the contemporary romance fans. Wiggs is always on the bestseller list. Um, you know, one of the few romance authors to really make it big and hardcover. And it's nice to see great. her doing so well. And finally, just down at number one, I wanted to give a hat tip to Liz Egan, who was on the show uh, with A Window Opens. Congratulations, Liz. And uh, not going to say a thing about the book, but if you are curious about uh, what put it on the bestseller list, then you can go back and listen to our episode yes. of uh, chatting with Elizabeth Egan about her novel.
0: Great. Excellent. So, uh, nonfiction, we also have a new number one, and this is Brene Brown, Rising Strong, 30,000 copies sold. Mm. We say that Brown uh, wrestles with that moment when we fall, and as she argues, the brave person attempting to live wholeheartedly will always fall. She encourages readers to be curious about their emotions and uh, accepting of vulnerability. We say it's easy for readers to become as invested in her story as they are in their own, and more importantly, to move beyond preconceived stories about themselves. So what we're seeing, uh, last week we saw, or the last few weeks, we've been seeing a lot of religion titles, Christian titles, and this week we're seeing a kind of smattering of self-help and, um... health titles, health and diet titles as Mm -hmm. well. Uh, The next one is uh, by Steve Silberman, Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Uh, We say journalist uh, Silberman devotes this thick, linear tome to the stunning evolution of the autism diagnosis from one that's explicitly negative to something more ambiguous and even positive. We say he's a little over-exuberant on some of his conclusions, saying that quote, strange gift from our, that autism is a strange gift from our deep past passed down through millions of years of evolution uh, but we still stay. you know still this is a thorough look at the difficulties and delights of a very complex disorder hmm. uh, at number 17 we have a starred review this is one of the uh, uh, health titles the blue zones solution eating and living like the world's healthiest people by dan Butner. Uh, he's the best-selling author of the blue zone. So this is following that, this diet book. Uh, we say this thoughtfully repre- uh, presented and well-written guide from which anyone, no matter where or who, she is in the journey of better health can benefit. So, um, we don't often see a lot of starred reviews for, uh, uh, health books. Um, but yeah, tell, one. tell
1: me a little bit more about that one. I'm, I'm curious about it. Cause you're right. We don't.
0: Yeah. I think sometimes with the science of it, it it's, um, uh, it, I think it's, when you don't have the science, as our you know, some of our reviewers may not, it's hard to just go on a limb to say, this is the one to follow. We can still give a positive review or negative right. review. Um, and I think there's maybe some hesitation in that. But, but then you go along with the writing, how the information is presented. Um, so uh, – and that's – I think how that might work. Yeah, do you, uh, did
1: we uh, say in the review what made that particular one star worthy? I'm just uh, I'm curious about that.
0: Um, nothing that's jumping out, but something that was obviously well enough put together that um, something that maybe even the editor just wanted to highlight. Say, all right, this is the batch of books that I've seen this season. This one, this one is going to stand out. Makes um, sense. So we have uh, next one the. Microbiome Solution A Radical New Way to Heal Your Body from the Inside Out by Robin Chutkin. She's a gastroenterologist and she makes a strongly argued proposal that people should live dirty and eat clean. Mm. Uh, she believes that the damage to the human microbiome or gut bacteria lies at the root of many current health problems. We say this is a thoughtful approach to health and wellness that's well worth the time of readers able and willing to research and evaluate Chutkin's many claims for themselves. She breaks down Basically, how bacteria works in the body during different stages of life, uh, from from the womb to adulthood, and and she claims that modern hygiene, for all its benefits, can kind of adversely affect immune system function, which is what we've heard a lot about too. Definitely, is uh, so number twenty four? That's
1: one reason to put away the antibacterial soap.
0: Exactly, and the wipes for the counters, yeah. and uh, exactly, and finally, at twenty six is a biography of Joan Didion by Tracy Daugherty called "The Last Love Song." And Tracy Doherty is the author of the biography of Donald uh, Donald Bartholomew, Hiding Man. And here, Doherty offers a monumental novelistic examination of Joan Didion's life and career. In the end, uh, we say this landmark work renders a nuanced analysis of a literary life and lauds Didion's ineligible contributions to American literature and journalism. Um, And that's at 26, and that's what we have. Those are big books on nonfiction.
1: All right. Well, uh, it'll be interesting to see as the big fall books keep rolling in, yep. uh, whether that self-help trend continues, whether we see the Christian books making another resurgence, or maybe it was just that one coincidental week.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to be seeing some big, uh, heavy uh, histories come down all right September October comes along
1: all right just in time for the start of school
0: yes exactly I'm Mark Rotella and
1: I'm Rose Fox and this is Publishers Weekly Radio
0: next up Elsa Hart tells us about murder and mystery in Qing Dynasty China we'll be right back
1: I'm Naomi Jackson author of The Star Side of Bird Hill and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Today we've got Elsa Hart on the line. Her debut novel is Jade Dragon Mountain. Hi, Elsa. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, as I said, this is your debut novel. It's a historical mystery. Tell us a little bit about the time and place.
2: Uh, So, uh, Jade Dragon Mountain is set in 18th century China, um, and it's set during a strange time. There is a new dynasty, the Qing dynasty, just establishing itself in China. And it's also a time when the West is finally really for the first time realizing that there's this huge and ancient empire in the East. So J. Dragon Mountain takes place right in that sort of delicate time. Um, and it takes place not in Beijing, the capital of China, but in the very, very remote southwest province of Yunnan.
0: And uh, the main character, one of the main characters, is a disgraced Beijing librarian named Li Du. Uh, tell us about him and his plight.
2: Uh, Li Du is, for for reasons that are not entirely clear, is under a sentence of exile uh, from from Beijing or from China. But because, because of the vast size of the empire, it's taken him several years to get to its border. So he's traveled to... In a very alone, isolated state for several years, and he 's finally come to the the border of China and tibet and he 's getting ready to leave leave the empire, leave his home forever um, and He comes to a small city called Dayan and is
1: uh, ends up getting sort of stuck there uh, due to due to a murder and who 's murdered and what 's the mystery around it uh, The murder is so the town is supposed to be this
2: completely remote, isolated, abandoned trading outpost. And Du is really surprised to find that it's this hive of activity and there are travelers coming from everywhere to this town. Um, and he finds out that it's because the emperor himself is going to visit this town on his southern tour of the empire, which of course for Lidu as an exile is not good news. Right. and he wants to get out as soon as possible. Um but but one of the travelers he meets in this town is a, a Jesuit priest and because Lidu knew a few Jesuit priests in the capital um and speaks their language, uh, Latin, he uh sort of has a connection with, with this man and and it is this man who who is killed, and and Lidu can't quite bring himself to walk away from that.
0: And uh, th- this Jesuit pers- is this uh, Peter von Dalen? Yes. And so so tell us exactly the year that the 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 century this was this takes place, and describe to us this place.
2: The, describe to us the, the city the city so it takes place in in the year 1708 mm-hmm. um and the the city is its uh contemporary name is lijiang but i refer to it by an older name of Dayan. um and it is the city itself it lies at the at the very base of a mountain called jade dragon snow mountain or Yulong shui shan um, and it is traditionally a quite important hub on an old trade route called the Tea Horse Road. And the Tea Horse Road was primarily what brought tea from the southern kind of tropical forests of China up uh, into the, the high plateau, uh, icy mountains of Tibet, where it was obviously impossible to grow tea. So uh, so this would be a kind of rough outpost, frontier, frontier town, but with a bustling market and a lot of traders passing through it.
1: And obviously also there are Westerners, um, in addition to the Jesuits. You've also got folks who work for the, the East India Company. Um what what was the the mix like in Dayan at the time?
2: So in in Dayan usually there probably wouldn't have been Westerners, and this is this exception because because the emperor is coming and there's going to be this huge festival, the borders are a little bit more open and there are more invitations than there usually would be. But at this time in China, actually, um, no foreigners were allowed in. And the only ones that, except for the Jesuits, and they were only welcome generally in in Beijing, in the capital, where they could be kept sort of under close supervision. So, So the ways, the sort of strange and mysterious ways that foreigners have managed to kind of Almost sneak in to Dian forms part of the plot
1: of the mystery. All right. Well, we won't ask you to give anything away, um, but what made you decide on this particular time and this particular setting? Not just in China, but at its at its borders, in a place that's undergoing all kinds of upheaval.
2: Uh, so it it started because I was living I was living in China at the time in in the city that is now known as Lijiang. Um, My husband is a biologist, and it was his work that that took us there. Um, So I was spending a lot of time on the mountain doing botanical work um, and also starting to learn a little bit about the history and the Teahorse Road and about some of the Jesuits and reading some of their impressions of China from when they had traveled during this century. Um, And the sort of funny thing is that I was... um, Having a lot of trouble sleeping because it's very, very high altitude this part of China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, to relax, I was listening over and over to the BBC radio broadcasts of Agatha Christie mysteries. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: oh wow!
2: Which, which I just I've always found really, really comforting. Um, so, so I was listening to these over and over, and and one day I was up on the mountain and feeling a little loopy from the altitude, and I started wondering whether you could set. A mystery kind of along the formula of murder on the Orient Express, which you know takes place on a train trapped in a snowdrift, but set it on this T horse road and whether the, the paths would be isolated enough to kind of mimic the same the same constraints on the plot. Um, and that's not the story I ended up writing, but that's that's how I started writing a mystery set in historical China.
1: So once you realized that you were writing a, a murder mystery set in uh, historical China, how did you go about researching it? I mean, obviously, being local that must have given you something of an advantage.
2: Being local helped a lot, and Lijiang, the city, has this this very uh, interesting sort of story, which is that in 1996 the city was almost completely destroyed by an earthquake, and after that happened, instead of rebuilding it as it looked when it was destroyed the decision was made to rebuild it in an old traditional style. Hmm. So to look the way it had looked hundreds of years ago. Um, And so it's now a huge tourist destination in China for that reason. Um, So I could literally get up if I got up early enough before it was crowded and walk through these narrow alleys with the sloping roofs and basically be writing what I saw to form the descriptions for the book. Um, And then, of course, the mountain hasn't changed at all in many thousands of years so I could the natural the natural beauty of that was right there for me to see as well
0: oh that's incredible I mean uh, that's uh seemingly unusual for uh, for I'm say the Chinese government or any government to completely recreate a city uh mm-hmm. the way it was centuries ago
2: yeah it's 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 amazing and it's again mostly there are some western tourists there but it's most popular for for Chinese tourists within China sort of a domestic tourist destination
1: so what else did you do to research? Did you uh, I mean you you're living in St. Louis now. Did any of your research take place back in the states or were you able to really do it all kind of on location?
2: Most of my so then so I had the describing what I saw, but then all of my almost all of my historical research I did back in the US uh since <laughs> since my husband's work depended on the flowers being uh In in bloom Mm. we would come back uh, around Christmas time so I uh, hold up in various libraries here either in uh, my parents live right outside Washington DC I did a lot of research actually at the the Smithsonian museums in DC going to the Freer and the Sackler and looking at a lot of art and artifacts from Mm -hmm. China in the time period I was looking at so so yeah my historical research happened mostly in the States
0: and how did you come up with the character, specifically the librarian? Why the librarian? Was it was it because you were spending so much time in libraries?
2: It was so amazing coming up with Li Du because he wasn't. I never, I never had the moment where I decided my detective is going to be a librarian. It was. I knew he was in exile, and that that happened because I was reading some classical Chinese poetry, not in Chinese but in English translation, and many of them focused on this theme of of exile. And that kind of got me thinking back to the Anglo-Saxon elegies that I'd studied as an undergrad, and the idea of an exile really resonated with me. And then I was writing an early piece of dialogue where Du said, I am, and I kind of intended to write Du, but I wrote A Librarian, and I just kind of looked at it, and I didn't question it after that. It made so oh. much sense. Um and it gives him that sort of, you know, a lot of detectives have almost a superpower in his is that he has still can kind of revisit his mem- his library and his mind and draw a lot of information from that.
1: And how does he fit in with the rest of the town of Diane? I mean, do people know that he's in exile, that he's on his way out? Is he sort of incognito? He's a bit incognito. It's so crowded and everybody's so excited about the emperor arriving
2: that he's not it's not a huge deal that he's there. uh the magistrate who's currently uh, in charge of the town um, actually turns out to be a, a relative of Lidu's. And um, I think I can say this without giving too much away. You know, he wants Du to leave as soon as possible as well because he doesn't want Du's presence to remind the emperor of the family's, you know, tarnished reputation. So everyone, nobody's really interested
1: in Du, and those who are kind of also want him to leave as quickly as possible. And what's your favorite part of writing these books? What gets you really excited when you're working on them?
2: I think a lot of it was in my historical research, just, you know, when you're writing historical fiction, you have these moments where you worry, oh my gosh, that's that's just stretching it too much, or nobody's going to believe that. And then when you find something in the actual research that's so much weirder or more bizarre than anything you could possibly uh-huh. make up. Um, and those were the moments that were, were really exciting, you know, like finding out that there was a a duel of astrological predictions in the courtyard of the Forbidden City between a Jesuit, a Muslim, and a shaman to see who could, who could predict an eclipse most accurately. And, and that actually happened. It was, wow. so, so those moments where you think you're going too far, and then you find out history's stranger than anything else.
0: And writing uh, a an historical novel, historical mystery, how do you handle dialogue? Uh with care <laughs>
2: um, yeah, and in this in this story, there are uh, quite a few different languages. There's mm. the local language of the the people who are native to this part of China um who are not ethnically Chinese, and then you've got Chinese people speaking Mandarin and the foreigners speaking Latin, and then you also have a lot of them you know not understanding each other, but you have to convey that all in English, of course, so mm-hmm. um it sort of became working by instinct and, and just trying to feel what felt confident and and natural and, and being responsible and not lazy about understanding what would work and what wouldn't.
1: And um, I think you speak multiple languages. Were you able to draw on that experience to help create that cacophony?
2: A little bit. Yes. And certainly cert- <laughs> there is a character who is really sadly clueless, um, uh, and And doesn't really understand anything that's happening around him and and that was something I could empathize with during the you know certainly the first couple of months I spent in China and that that complete disorient, disorientation of yeah. of not speaking the language so so i yeah I think I was able to to draw on that that confusion and the feelings that accompany it.
1: Did you eventually end up learning Chinese for um when you were there or at least getting by? I learned survival survival Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, and and that also
2: contributed. A, I was working really hard to learn it. Um, it's, it's, I found it a very hard language to learn. And in this remote place, you know, really no one around us spoke English. So I was struggling so much to communicate at the most basic level, you know, with literally uh, with sure. my neighbors um, that I think writing the book and really pushing myself to use the language I did have to its full ex- extent became kind of an outlet for that frustration.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Elsa Hart, the author of Jade Dragon Mountain, who's telling us about her own time in China as well. Um, let's go back a little bit. Uh, you mentioned your parents live outside of D.C. You graduated from with Washington School of Law. Are you still practicing?
2: I'm not, I, I, and, and, and did not actually, I, um, I went to China for the first time after my second year of law school, which is usually when law students get an internship that then hopefully leads to a, to a job. Um, and then, and then went back to China to really move there immediately after I graduated. So I did not, in fact, actually take the bar exam. Um, though I did, I did graduate. (laughs)
1: But does that? Uh, I mean, you still have all this legal background. How does that inform the the mystery and government aspects of your novel?
2: Um, I, I think there are, there are certainly characters from law school that made it into the book in various ways. Um, Do they and, know that? Yeah.
1: Um,
2: I mean, I think I, I think that without realizing it at the time, law school was was getting me in the mode. the that I was going to, that, that was going to end up leading to writing the book. I mean, I didn't realize going into law school that often it, it's less about learning individual laws and more about learning to think like a lawyer and approach problems in a certain way. And there's a lot of overlap with writing fiction because everything that you're doing is choosing, looking at facts, choosing which ones are important, choosing what order to put them in to craft a narrative. Um, And you're just practicing that again and again and again, and I think those mental muscles really were engaged when I was writing fiction. As well, I don't, I don't know what
1: that says ultimately. But no, that's so interesting. Yeah. You know, and we we talk with a lot of authors on the show who have different backgrounds, and um, it's it's funny how I think sort of everything turns into the minds that they use when writing the novel. So a musician will say, "Oh well, you know, I totally build the the novel the way that I uh, hear a piece of music with its different strains and refrains." And um, I've never heard that said about thinking legally before, but I can also totally see how that would work. Mm-hmm. So you've also traveled quite a bit. You were born in Rome. You've lived in Moscow. Tell us a, a little bit about uh, your adventures around the world and how that informs your writing.
2: Uh, yes, my I was I was born in Rome. My dad at the time was a, a journalist, a foreign correspondent for U.S. News and World Report magazine. So that's what brought my family abroad. And uh, after we lived, I was only two years old when we left Rome, so I don't really have memories of that. But we lived after that for five years in Moscow.
0: Uh.
2: Um, and that, so those are my earliest memories. And, and I think were, now that I think back on it, really fundamental to, to getting me to eventually writing writing fiction, writing a novel. I um, Russian fairy tales told to me both by my mother and by my nanny there just they really get deep into your head mm-hmm. um, and and also visiting my mom took me to a lot of museums and from a really really young age i was obsessed with tell me the story of this painting you know what's happening in this painting who are the characters why are why is he angry why is she so so it was just this build up with a lot of focus on storytelling and narrative and then i'm so grateful for for how much i was able to see in terms of art and culture in different in different countries
0: and uh, of course, those Russian fairy tales are often pretty, pretty dark and mm-hmm. grim. Uh, w- when when were you in Moscow?
2: We were there from uh, nineteen eighty six to nineteen ninety one. So uh, right through, before the, through first grade,
0: yeah.
1: So also a very a very tumultuous time.
2: Yes, very. And for my dad, as a journalist very very exciting um and and tense at times and and for me sort of more focused on building snow castles but (laughs) (laughs) right but that's important too exactly
1: did you ever get to do any of that in tibet uh building snow castles (laughs) yeah (laughs) i guess i didn't but i hope to at some point (laughs) so you had described it as as really moving to china um are you going to continue going back there
2: Uh, Yes, we're for the moment settled in in St. Louis. uh, But but my husband's work will bring us back requires a kind of periodic monitoring of some mountain summits in China. Mm -hmm. So so we'll definitely be going back next next fall, um, either for a quick trip or for a longer one. It's it's undecided, but but definitely plan to get back there.
1: Did you uh, make any local friends who, whose English uh, was up to reading your manuscript? Were you able to run it by uh, the locals and say, you know, what works, what doesn't? Or were you pretty much going kind of seat of your pants as best you could?
2: It was sort of seat of my pants in terms of actually reading the manuscript, um, but, but talking about the history and and asking questions about about the language and what would work and and also talking about poetry and interpreting interpreting Chinese poems and and decisions made in translating them i did have the opportunity to talk to um actually some of our translators who were helping Robbie with his botanical work but were really lovely about
1: talking to me as well about literary literary subjects so tell us a little bit more about this Chinese poetry because i know almost nothing about it uh,
2: so I was reading uh, classical Chinese poetry from the Tang Dynasty, and the funny thing was, I had no idea the coincidence at the time. But the translation I was reading are by an author named Xu Xiaolong, who also is a mystery author, um, mm. uh, publishing with Minotaur Books. So, um, and I think lives in St. Louis. None of which I realized. But <laughs> what a coincidence! <laughs> exactly. Um, but these the poems, they're just. They're so beautiful, and it's just so amazing how well they translate when the languages are so different. In many ways, the English is a completely different poem, but a lot of focus on images of natural beauty of mountains and flowing water and clouds, and then relating that to feelings of exile or isolation or uh, disappointment in your own empire uh, and, and all expressed in this just remarkably sad way.
0: And when was the Tang Dynasty?
2: Oh, my gosh. I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was quite a lot earlier than, yes, than what then, I
0: was thinking. right. And Definitely. it's kind
2: of viewed, I think, in Chinese culture as as in many ways the, the literary
1: height of of Chinese uh, literature. So sort of the way we look at Renaissance. Renaissance painting or yes. things like that. Got it. So that that makes a lot of sense. So in some ways, these might be poems that your characters would have read, you know, a poem about exile that, that would have comforted Lee do as he was on his travels. Exactly. That's exactly
2: so. And, and I think at one point, he even kind of talks to talks to an old poet um, and addresses him in conversation, sort of by himself, talking to the moon. Hmm.
0: So while writing the book and, and living there, what, what did you find most challenging? Either in either in, in daily life there or, or in writing.
2: Oh gosh, there were there were a lot of challenging things. It, it it was extremely physically. I didn't know that I had the physical stamina that I ended up having there uh, to do the mountain work that we were doing was um, was really exhausting at, at very high altitudes. So that was hard. But it was also. I mean, it's still a really really rural place. So all of our. It's amazing how much time daily survival activities take you know hand washing clothes in a bucket and all of the water was solar heat only so on a cloudy day it's only cold water um and all of the water the water isn't safe to drink so it always has to be uh boiled or treated in some way and it, it was just you realize that it can be quite hard work just to function and you don't think about that you know in in the us so much
0: and then writing on top of that.
2: Yes, yes, writing on top of that. Or um and it definitely that gets in there too, you know, lead to in experiencing physical discomfort right. that's, that's coming right from the author.
0: Right. <laughs> right, right.
1: Wow. So um were were you sort of contributing to all of that? Were you washing your clothes in the bucket and, and so forth on top of the, the mountain work?
2: Yes, yes, that was that was the the lifestyle uh there there every day and um living in a just a really tiny efficiency apartment and and writing um i mean you really ended up just living very very simply you realize you kind of just need two sets of clothes to wear and um i guess another thing that was hard i mean it was it was lonely i was there i was so happy to be there with my husband but um but but it was it was quite isolated and not being able to connect really really deeply with very many people around
1: me was hard and missing my family. Mm. So you, in in your own way, you were sort of a self-imposed exile. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. I think so. So you said you're, uh, you're almost done wrapping up the second book. Uh, are you planning to do more?
2: I hope to. Yes. I mean, almost done. It, it's, uh, I think I'm, I owe it to, to my wonderful editor in November. So it'll be kind of i'll be working right up until then to get it done and then i i hope be able to take a little break and then i really really hope be able to launch right into another one
1: well that's very exciting and um what what are your plans beyond that to to stick with this to continue traveling to china uh right full time definitely right full time i am all in
2: at the moment this is what i do all day every day um but yes I'll, and and the nice thing about that is that uh there's some flexibility in where I can be. So so depending on my husband's work and, and where his research takes him and grants and things, we'll definitely be doing more traveling.
1: And when you're traveling, how do you write? Do you write on a laptop? Or are you writing by hand, lantern light? How does how's, yeah. how's, how's that work? Anything. It's crazy if you can see the, <laughs> the, the materials. I mean, um, stacks of
2: napkins, notebooks, uh, some things on my laptop, but then, you know, the battery runs out and there's no power. So um, kind yeah a wild cacophony of of things but but somehow it all got done, except not not i I never wrote the actual manuscript by hand um that was always done on the computer, but research wise it was crazy
0: well i'm i 'm sure uh living and working on the mountain, you were free from from social media and so many other distractions in life.
2: That's true. And that's been a, such a change coming back and working on the second one, mostly here in the States, was really trying to trying to pretend that I was still in that, that isolated place because I'd gotten quite used to it.
1: But on the other hand, does having internet access make some of the research easier or make it easier to connect with translators and other folks who might be able to help you out?
2: Definitely, definitely. It makes research that sometimes could take you know, weeks, and then you kind of forget what your question was just happen in, in seconds. So so that that has been very helpful.
1: So if someone wanted to get started writing uh, a historical series or a mystery series, um, do you have any advice, any recommendations for them other than isolate yourself on a mountain and wait?
2: <laughs> I mean, I think I'm not sure if this would if they would get the same advice from from all writers of historical fiction. But for me, I would say, um, not to be wary of over researching Mm -hmm. that you can get really drawn into I mean history is vast and there are so many perspectives and at some time at some point you have to let go and trust your own story and trust that you have enough of the history and enough of the background in your mind that it will it will get you in the right direction but at some point you have to let go and 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 kind of let your characters breathe a little bit outside of that research
0: to allow them to be human in in maybe a, a contemporary sense and not tied to the history that they're living or that you're writing about
1: Exactly exactly oh, wow and I've certainly had that experience of sort of diving down the, the rabbit hole. And three weeks later, I know an awful lot about carpets, but that doesn't ex- you know, help my plot move any better.
2: Right. And, and, if, and if anything, sometimes it can sort of paralyze you because you're like, yeah, how, how do you move forward with that much in your head?
0: Now, do you work with an outline or or do you write uh, or do you have an idea as to where the, the the book is 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 heading?
2: I do. I do work with an outline and then sort of start with an outline start writing realize that there's a problem go back change the outline so it starts to be a back and forth and back and forth so so the outline and the book is sort of developing uh almost in a parallel you know back and forth kind of way um but and and i've been a little bit more relaxed with my outline in the second book but for the first one and especially since it was a mystery and i had so many little pieces that had to fit together the outline was a really essential skeleton
1: for it so you knew who'd done it from the very beginning
2: Yes, yes. I've heard of of mystery authors who do, who who don't, and that's just amazing to me. I would never be able to to do it without without a plan.
1: Yes, I, I I'm always in awe of people who can plot out mysteries and and put in all the redirections and make it all come out right at the end. Because I just think, how how did you how did you do that? How did you know? It's amazing.
0: Yeah, right. They must be
2: really good at chess too. I would think of just holding that kind of thing in your head.
0: Right.
1: We've been talking with Elsa Hart, and you can find her book Jade Dragon Mountain in stores right now. Elsa, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, PW News Director Rachel Deal talks about an indie children's book phenomenon. Stay
0: tuned. Hi, I'm Anil Anandaswamy. I'm author of the book The Man Who Wasn't There, uh, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW News Director Rachel Deal is here to tell us all about an unexpectedly successful rabbit. Hello. <laughs>
1: so I I love writing these interviews. So, but this rabbit really is taking the world by storm. Uh, tell us tell us a little bit about uh, this book that uh, was self published and is now going to be traditionally published. And what's up with that? Yeah, um, it
3: did sort of come out of nowhere. Um, for sure, what happened here was uh, there was a self-published uh, picture book called "The Rabbit Who Wants to Fall Asleep" that mysteriously shot to the top of Amazon UK's print bestseller list. Mm. Um, and just to just to clarify why that's significant as opposed to a different list, um, Amazon has lots of different bestseller lists, but um, the print list, by and large, at um, at Amazon are separate than I would say the, um, the, the, well, they're separate from the digital list. And I think you see a lot more instances with, um, self-published titles, rising lists, um, on the digital side, Uh because, um, a lot of self-published authors are finding success selling eBooks. Um, and there's a lot more sort of, um, you know, changing of prices and that kind of thing. So it's not that unusual to see um, a self-published title sort of at the top of some of these digital bestseller lists. But you rarely see a title um, at the top of a print list that hasn't been traditionally published. And this book um, actually hit number one on Amazon's UK list, which was uh, a first uh, for them. And what happened was, once it got to the top of that list, then it uh, was written about in the UK newspaper, The Daily Mail. And The Daily Mail story, while it sort of used the fact that the book was at the top of Amazon's chart as a hook, it it also focused on this um, unusual aspect of the book, which is that it claimed reading it would lull children to sleep. So...
1: Um, and it claimed to have al- almost sort of magical power to do that, right? Like w- supposed to be way more successful than any other method. And it did. Um, and it's actually it's
3: interesting. The the um, the Daily Mail article was kind of it was written by somebody who's a medical journalist for them, so it, it, it was a bit more. It wasn't a publishing story, really. It was. Right. It was more um, like a the, parenting story. Yeah, parenting. Um, and sure. it mentioned in the story that you know the book had sort of become a word of mouth hit, um, because all these parents, um, a lot of mothers in particular seem to be talking about it online, um, on different sort of, um, well, it, it was unclear, you know, but it social media so it's sort of are um, mommy blogs or listservs kind of thing.
0: Well, who is the author and how did the author, what's the author's background and how did the author get this published? I mean, this is also a, a um, uh, there's images here, there's drawings. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's an illustrated book rather than when we think of something self-published, we think just text.
3: Right. It is illustrated. Um, and the author's name is Carl Johan Forsen-Erlen. And I hope I pronounced that correctly. And uh, he's a Swedish man. And they say he's a behavioral scientist and life coach. Um, and if you go to his website, uh, you'll actually see he um, he illustrated these books himself. And I say books because he released the book in multiple editions. Um, he released it in Swedish initially, and then he translated into multiple, translated the book into multiple languages, English being one of them, um, and then released an English language edition in the UK and in the U S and he, he published it through, um, Amazon's create space unit, um, which is one of their self-publishing units. And, um, yeah, I mean, what's happened here, it's so notable because the book became, so big so quickly, I mean, mm-hmm. um, so we we looked into sort of how it how it got to the top of Amazon's chart to begin with. Um, and I don't really know. I mean, at the end of the day um, it's it's unclear yeah. what exactly happened um, to to drive it there. I mean, there have been vague references from um, his literary agency um, he he got representation sort of after the book became. Um, so widely covered from the Salamonsen Agency, which is a, a powerful literary agency in Sweden. Um, they represent authors like Joe Nesbo and and other um, international bestsellers. And um, yeah, I mean, they said he did some online marketing. And but you know, it's it's really fascinating to see um, how quickly something like this can take off. And there's no question, um, regardless of how it got to the top of Amazon's UK print list once it got the coverage um, in the Daily Mail. And then that story led to other stories and and numerous publications in ours being one. Um, Then it was sort of off to the races. And then you can see how the media in this case, um, you know, fed the story and it drove interest. And then what happened was, um, even though, you know, CreateSpace, they, they were incredibly effective to get a number of copies into the market quickly um because the book after the daily mail story um and we, you know we've written about this um on according to Nielsen BookScan which tracks about 80% of print mm. sales in the US um the book rose really quickly there um basically the the numbers we have um so at the end of the week of August 16th which is just after the daily mail story the book had according to BookScan sold 24 copies in the US then the following week, uh, which would be the week ending august twenty third it' had sold more than twenty nine thousand copies wow. <laughs> so how did, that,
0: how did that travel so quickly? How did that news travel so quickly? Was it just people read the daily or the uh, 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 the newspaper story
3: yeah and i I mean I think what you have to look at and appreciate as well is sort of the nuance of the kind of coverage it got um you know this book it has I think if you if you want to compare it to anything, and the only thing I can really compare it to um, is uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. But like that book, um, you know what this had was it's a it's a book that promises to do something miraculous, right? Mm-hmm. So you read it and you say, "Wow, I wonder does the book really do that?" And the only way to find out is to buy it and then read right. it to your kids and see if it works. So there's that, and then there's also this um, added benefit, which I think draws more media attention and then also piques the interest of um, consumers reading these stories, uh, which is this book has come out of nowhere. Who is this guy? He's Mm self-published. So it, it lends another layer to the story, which I think you'll see, you know, I mean, all the time we see novels and Um, you know, serious nonfiction or other books getting media attention. The the kind of media attention it gets is, this is a really good book and you should read it, or, you know, this isn't such a good book and you shouldn't. Um, You know, and sometimes there is more of a backstory. You know, sometimes there is an author who has, um, I don't know, if you think of Nell Zink and some Mm -hmm. of the press she's gotten recently, um, you know, she was somebody who had a really interesting backstory and that her, you know, sort of, she kind of... um, she came onto the literary scene in part through a friendship with uh, Jonathan Franzen, and, and this backstory. So, um, but you can sort of see how, as interesting as that is, she's writing fiction, and um, it doesn't have the same sort of out-of-the-gate effect that this kind of thing will. Um, right. I mean,
1: I didn't even know there were self-published children's picture books, though, it's thinking rare. about it I mean, now, yeah. it doesn't surprise me. I yeah, guess, it, because it, it is more rare. I mean, that's the other thing. Because it's so much work to put into something without knowing whether you're going to
3: succeed. It is. I mean, I think one of the reasons you don't see as many self-published picture books, too, is because, by and large, picture books um, are still popular in print. And, right. again, to, to self-publish largely in print, people do do it. Um, it's just it can be a lot harder to get something to take off. Um, because first of all, it's, you know, it's more expensive for consumers to buy it. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of the things, and I think we're still waiting to see what happened here. Um, if we ever know, I mean, we don't right now how the book became so successful. Um, the, the book is available in digital, um, and had, and it has been. Mm. And I think, um, you know, somebody commenting on one of the stories we ran said that they'd been looking at the book as well and trying to figure out what happened. And this guy, who is somebody who works in publishing, said he thinks the author did a lot of giveaways. Um, hmm. That may be the case. I mean, I think if if those giveaways happened, he probably did it digitally. I mean, it would be really expensive to do print giveaways, especially for somebody who's self-publishing. You know, right. who's paying for yeah, those absolutely. copies themselves. But um, you know, it, it's really interesting because there's. Oh there are always questions I think um for indie authors about you know the effectiveness of giveaways how best to do it and of course the issue is if you're giving something away that nobody knows about do they even want it right so if you're if you're trying to promote your book and you're saying get it for free it can be very powerful but um you know the issue is do people want something for free that they're not interested in anyway, right. um, or they, that they haven't heard about.
0: So now, uh, now a publisher has come in and just like, as you had made the, uh, um, drawn similarities, um, uh, to 50 shades of gray, what's the publisher, which publisher bought it and what does each the publisher and the author stand to gain from this after the book has already been on the bestseller list?
3: Um well the so Random House came in and uh, acquired the book um and I should say it's it was a joint acquisition between uh, Random House Children's Books in the US and then um Random House the same the children's division in the mm-hmm. UK right um so they bought world English rights to the book um and they're going to be releasing it in all the countries um, in which Random House publishes in English. So that's the U- the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, and South Africa. Um, and they're they're not changing the book uh, that much, actually. So they, they released a slightly updated cover for the book. Um, but other than that, it looks like it's going to be published as it is. And um, basically, I think the thing that they're doing is they're going to get it out really quickly. And, and sort of recalling Fifty Shades of Grey, I mean, what happened there, too, is when... Um, Random House also acquired that, um, Vintage, which is one of their paperback units. I mean, when they acquired that book, um, which they paid a lot of money for, it was already, you know, it was already wildly popular. It had gotten tons of attention. Yeah. And what Random House was able to do was, um, you know, that book wasn't technically self-published, but it was published by such a small publisher in Australia that right. um, it was very difficult for them to fulfill Requests and the book really wasn't in stores, and um, so what what Random House was able to do was really sort of put its distribution um, business to work and and flood copies into the market. So all of a sudden there's intense demand, and you know the the publisher isn't really able to meet that demand, but Random House comes in and they can. Right. And so in some ways they're not well, it's not publishing as we think of it. In some ways it's more distribution, but obviously what Random House did with Fifty Shades of Grey was incredibly effective because. Um, you know, it was just able to feed this demand in and you have to give them credit, you know, in a very effective way.
0: Um, Do we know how much uh, Random House bought for this?
3: B- well, you know, that's interesting. Um, they have not commented on yeah. that. Um, we've heard and we've run this figure that the author got a seven figure ad- advance. But um, no, you know, they, been, yeah. they won't confirm any right. of that. Uh, they yeah. won't comment on it. Um, and, you know, now what's happening is they're releasing the book and. Um, um, in ebook, they're releasing their own ebook edition on September eighth, and then um, pretty soon on October second, um, they're going to have the uh, t- the print titles out. And then they're also actually interestingly doing two audio editions. Right. Um, they're going to be doing downloadable and CD. Of audio, the
0: book, audio editions for a picture book.
1: Yeah, you know, I assume um, so that you can just have someone else read your child to sleep, right? <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> you, don't, you don't even have to be there. You <laughs> right. just you just put the tape on, <laughs> right. right? Samuel right. Jackson is going to read you to sleep now, kid. <laughs> right. And we're, uh, we're but, this and go the f to sleep, and you know we're just going to put them on back to back, and you have to listen to them on repeat until you go to bed, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Well, and I I think it'll be it'll be interesting with the audio
3: editions. It is it is unusual, but kind of makes sense in this case because you know the point of the book is to put your kids to sleep and so there's an idea with the audio and they're doing and I I don't know why this is I mean I'm intrigued by this they're doing one edition with a female narrator and one edition with a male narrator um and you know I don't know if that speaks to I don't know if there's any data on whether you know some kids are maybe lulled to sleep by a certain kind of voice right. versus another right. you know i don't know if if kids are used to one parent potentially putting them down over the other um so you know that's interesting and uh yeah i mean i i really think now after we've seen this um the the announcement of um random house's acquisition of the book just happened uh on wednesday mm-hmm. um earlier this week and so yeah i mean i think they're they're going to be fulfilling orders in a, in a really big way. So I mean, to your point, the book is already on the bestseller list, but I think it has the potential to sell to, a lot right. more copies right. um, because everybody's talking about it now. Everybody's right. asking, should I buy it? Um, but it is going to be interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, and again, going back to Fifty Shades, there was an element too of that of is what is this book? Is it interesting? Do I need to read it? Am I going to like it? And, you know, I think people sometimes thought, well, if people don't like it, it's going to sort of kill it, right? Right. If people say, I bought it and I just, it wasn't as sexy as I thought, or it just wasn't as good as I thought, but that didn't happen. I mean, people kept buying it. I mean, one, a, a lot of people loved it clearly, but I mean, it certainly wasn't hurt by lots of people disliking it and saying so, um, you know, in in a public fashion. So that'll be an interesting question here because, you know, you've already, there have been sort of stories about parents testing it and some people saying it doesn't work. Other people have said it does. Right. Um, it seems to be... I guess some form of hypnosis or something is is maybe what's afoot. I think that's a, that's what's happening here. But um, you know, I think it will be interesting that if if a bunch of people come out and say it doesn't work, is that going to stop people from trying it to see if it really does right. and and buying it? Well,
1: um, it'll be very interesting to follow the story and all the Amazon reviews and uh, and see see where it goes. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. It's a, it's really fascinating to see how this is turning out and uh we'll keep an eye on it yeah sure sure thanks for having me always great to have you on the show and now a final word from our sponsors
2: hi i'm sabata here author of an ember in the ashes and you are listening
1: to publishers weekly radio
0: And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Join us next week for an interview with Buzz Bissinger celebrating the 25th anniversary of Friday Night Lights. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
1: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on Audiobook Radio